You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dean Nash, Head of Legal and Compliance at Monzo Bank. Not just a lawyer, but a distinctly entrepreneurial lawyer and one working in that most regulated of spaces, fintech. The question this week is from a first-time board director, which is actually very exciting because it means that there is at least one out there that doesn't hate me yet. Uh, They ask, how do I support a very fast-moving and successful founding team who seem to regard board meetings and any other form of governance as an unnecessary distraction? There's a fine line between creativity and chaos, and there have already been a few legal errors and a distinct lack of consideration to wider regulatory issues, which is why I've been brought in. I can see real risk to the business and conflict between the shareholders and the founders if I don't find a way to balance the approach that has got them successfully to this point with the serious responsibilities they now face. So, Dean, welcome. Uh, I have this vision in my head that a good chunk of your day is spent herding cats and trying to ensure that these chaotic entrepreneurial types understand which rules really mustn't be broken so that no one lands in trouble or in jail. Is there any truth to that? Well, uh, thank you, Vicky, for having me. Um, Thankfully, it's nowhere near as dramatic as that. As a bank, I'll be a very young one, we have some of the processes in place that you'd expect of a much more mature company. Uh, We're pretty good on corporate governance, risk management and compliance. But getting to this point hasn't hasn't been super easy. And it's meant a lot of real intellectual honesty about like what processes genuinely add value, which ones don't, which ones are there just because they're just part of the toolkit of what a director or a senior person might bring along to an organization. Uh, I know that I've had to question some of the processes that I had tried to implement and uh, just think think twice about do these actually add value to where the company is right now. Of course, I'm constantly asked, but why? What about this? Yep. How about that? What's Bye. the worst that can happen? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, a dozen times a day. And a really part, enjoyable part of my job is to, rather than get defensive about that, say, okay, well, good question. Why do we have that? And then just explore that discussion together. It's, it's basically about trying to find is a process or a rule or a system that we have, is it relevant or suitable to us right now? And so if it isn't right now, then it will come out. And if it, if actually we need a new one, we'll put it in. And that continues to evolve. Mm-hmm. So I joined about a, just over a year ago, nearly a year and a half ago now, and we were 40 to 50 people. We're not far off 300 now wow. in just over a year. That's amazing. (laughs) I knew you guys were moving fast. That really is scaling, isn't it? Yeah. And so it's a very interesting discussion. You know, one week I might have a discussion that says, should we have a process for this thing? And the answer is no, definitely not. And then two weeks later, should we have a process? Yeah, actually, probably now we should have a process for that thing. When you get to 300 people, that's not to say, oh, you don't trust people anymore. But actually, people probably need some direction so they can know, you know what, I am allowed to go onto Twitter and I'm allowed to talk about Monzo. And they just have a bit of a bit of direction, and so actually that those controls are introducing some guidelines now. They're not necessarily about oh, we're trying to mitigate risks, although that is an important part of it. It's also about helping people to speed up their decision making. 
And I think the, the, the point for us around when to introduce a process or a rule or something is primarily driven by, is it going to help us speed up our decision making? Mm -hmm. If it isn't, then you can probably just rely on people's good common sense to a large degree. I think it's one of the interesting things about this question that this director is asking because it, it seems like this team have been successful so far by going fast, probably much as I've tended to do, ask for forgiveness, not permission, and make it up as they go along. And, and that has worked to a degree. But presumably, once that gets into, as you're talking about, once you get into 300 people, once you're getting to a significant customer base like you have, you can't make the same kind of mistakes and ask for forgiveness all of the time in the way that perhaps you did as a small team? I think there's, in terms of saying to people, okay, go and you either need to seek permission or you need to seek forgiveness. I don't, I don't think we do either of those things, actually. I think what we say to teams is you have a bunch of responsibilities to do things compliantly, to do things in a well-considered fashion, to do things that are you know, in the best interest of the customer. And we give people full stack teams to execute against a particular problem. Mm -hmm. So, for example, our financial crime team is made up of financial crime analysts, a couple of business leaders, and some engineers. And so if they need to reset some machine learning rules that allow them to identify suspicious transactions, there isn't a, uh, a formal process they need to go to go through to get approval because actually the best people to decide whether that's the right thing is the team themselves so they have the regulatory expertise the data the authority they have to make the decision and then they have the engineers to deliver against it that's not again a point around forgiveness or permission it's no, they're, they're running themselves. I suppose the forgiveness business. comes in is if then that that, that kind of goes a little bit wrong and <clears throat> the system doesn't come back up, um, which occasionally happens. But it, it's better if, if people. I get what you're saying. If people are working, they have um, authority <clears throat> and they have self determination within clearly defined rules. Well, clearly defined scope of responsibility, yeah. then they are able to act in a sort of self determining and informed way. Yeah, and I think that that approach is largely informed by what type of company we want to be. And so that will go across our strategy, our risk appetite, uh, which of course the, the, the board and directors have a huge role to play in. And so in designing what is our risk appetite for, for example, financial crime risk, of course it is very low. And so one way to manage financial crime risk to such a degree would be to have a centralized um, approval and sign-off process and mm -hmm. another way may be to have a small expert expert team that you're satisfied they're an expert team and you're satisfied that they have the right education and um, knowledge to do what they need mm -hmm. to do and then if you look at the results of what that team produces and there are things that have gone wrong then you can look at that and say actually you know maybe maybe we need to exert a bit more governance or a bit more control over that thing and so i think the the dynamic between the board and the directors and how close they are to the business in that type of arrangement is probably different to 
a larger organization where the board is satisfying itself that things are being managed within risk capital, they're being done compliantly or properly because they're seeing centralized processes being deployed. If they need to get satisfied that a team, an individual team is doing what it needs to do, then they probably need to get a bit closer to that team, actually. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing when you've got, when you first get um, to the stage perhaps where A, you have a board, and then board executive tensions, natural tensions, I mean, I don't necessarily mean tension in, in a negative sense, but... You know, you've got one group of people who've been used to kind of making it up as they go along and go very, very fast. And you've got another group of people going, whoa, hold on here. There's there's risk, there's responsibilities, there's rules. Presumably there is a process of finding some kind of common ground so that you don't have people paralysed with following rules. But you also don't have things that are simply, you don't have risks coming through but not on the radar at all. Yeah, I think... Um I, I can't actually imagine a founder ever being paralysed for fear of, <laughs> uh, for fear of uh, breaking rules. No, I've, um, I've been paralysed in, in, in board admin, I have to say. Yeah, I've got yeah. to the places where kind of, you know, I, I've found that I'm spending more time talking to shareholders and boards and the administration around that than I have been to my actual teams. But I think those are phases of growing pains you, you sometimes go when, particularly when these dynamics are... A new. I think on one hand, governance is one of those things that you don't see a need for until after the event. <laughs> <laughs> and then you think, oh, it would have been obvious if we just thought about that thing yep. at that point, then all of this would have, uh, wouldn't have gone wrong. And then it's, oh, now we shouldn't. Then, then you kind of steer the other way, steer the ship the other way and put in place a load of checks and balances that are probably you know, over, overzealous. Um, but when time is of the essence and you're trying to move very, very quickly, governance and controls can, I think, slow you down. They'll also speed you up in one respect because you're not then spending time fixing things that have gone broken. Oh, Getting... You're not spending time second-guessing every single decision about whether the, you know, the right decision has been made. You're, you're... So I think kind of when you're small and everybody just, in, just inherently knows what everyone else is working on, and there is clear transparency over decision-making, then introducing governance and controls can feel a bit unnecessary and a bit overburdensome. But when that transparency goes, just because you've got to a certain size or you're not clear on how decisions are being made, then actually governance that informs the things that people need to think about when they're making decisions is a good thing. And actually, that's how a director satisfies themselves that without you know, basically sitting in the business all day long. Mm-hmm. That's how a director will get themselves comfortable that things are being managed in the right way. They'll look at the processes, they'll look at the exceptions from the process, they'll look at you know, data that evidences whether the process is being followed or that um, even if it is being followed, that the wrong outcomes are still being uh, arrived at. And actually, if you're only there two or three days a month, like most directors yeah. are, that's probably the, the, the best you can do. If you want to... If you, if you want to get closer to that. and I would I would advocate that directors do get closer than that particularly in a startup you probably yeah. need to turn up to internal meetings and um, walk the floor and speak. I think that's really <laughs> I think it's really interesting you say that it, it's something that I personally felt as I came out of the last business that I I think I the board the individual directors and and my my teams would have 
actually benefited from a little bit more time of, of, of then coming in and seeing actually how decisions were made about why are we going to use this piece of machine learning? You know, why are we going to focus on this piece of product roadmap for the next three months? Why um, you know, is only X percent of these sales converting? I think seeing, even if it was just coming in once and observing different yeah. teams, I think would have probably revealed to more experienced people than I where there may have been a gap in the process, but it would probably would have also reassured where even if the right outcome wasn't happening each time, the decision-making process behind it was robust. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, just doing simple things like having one-to-ones with middle management as a director, that's a hugely powerful way to get a much closer to the organisation. That's really interesting because I, I really bang on about CEOs, you know, how they should never abandon the one-to-one, you know, however busy they get. It's a really key thing, but it's actually, I can see why that would be really, really helpful. Is that something you've seen working or is that a dream <laughs> of uh, this is how it should, would work ideally? Uh, no, I, it absolutely works here at, um, at Monzo. We, um, as a bank, we basically have to use full comply with a full corporate governance code which means we have uh, four independent non-execs and four uh, executive stroke investor directors which feels like a very large board for such a well at the time you know very small company um, growing rapidly though but actually each director adds a huge amount of value and you know the independent non-execs will come in and they're all from a regulatory or a banking background mm-hmm. and having that balance between experience in banking and regulation and the kind of entrepreneurial spirit on uh, the other side of the table is a really powerful combination but it uh, it requires you know people meeting meeting in the middle really and that's largely achieved through you know really proactive proactive work from our directors that come to the office and have one-to-ones with middle management and feed their experience directly into the company. It's very interesting because I think Monzo is one of those uh, brands that has built a massive amount of credibility for itself it, you know, with its customers, but with the industry, with the wider environment, by behaving like a mature, grown-up company in, in, in a lot of respects, but at the same time being extremely innovative and, and from what I can see it's one of the exceptions in the space is there any kind of common risks or common potholes that you see perhaps other startups and, and scale-ups falling into that maybe haven't taken some of these lessons on board I, I can't think of many companies early-ish stage companies who have a role like yours I mean part of it is kind of forced by the fact that we're a bank and we have to have a much higher level of governance than another type of company Um, on balance that's actually been a very positive thing but also it's always just been part of the mission of Monzo really Mm -hmm. which was to reintroduce trust and transparency into banking by essentially using those kind of values as a north star then the way we make decisions just kind of follows that oh you know what we're going to we need to introduce a new type of charge. So we should go out to our community and ask for their opinion on it, like we did when we introduced um, charges for ATM withdrawals. 
And so instantly, our customers and the rest of the wider community is thinking, oh, wait a minute, this is a, this is a company that are doing things differently. They're being transparent. They're trying to uh, reintroduce trust into the relationship between a customer and its bank. And that means that actually complying with regulation or complying with the correct way of doing banks uh, banking um, activity should just follow actually it's almost like it's almost the other way around isn't it it's it's that you're trying to the absolute best right thing for your your customer yeah and it's almost like the the compliance is is the groundwork yeah exactly space it's interesting and so when i joined to help with legal and compliance i was expecting to turn up and say you know no crikey what are you doing you can't do this you can't do that and actually what i found was people doing things incredibly well and much more in line with the regulators uh, perspective of treating customers fairly and the management of conduct risk those were you know completely through the culture of the whole organization and continued to be so and therefore it makes my job very easy when I say oh there's this like little um, black letter uh, piece of legislation that you need to follow because ordinarily we're just you know almost like accidentally doing it anyway yeah Uh, accidentally doing the best practices in the service of your customer exactly yeah which if presumably more organizations did the compliance would be less headhanded <laughs> in the first place well quite but in terms of kind of common risk um, potholes and you know things that actually i think there's there's one thing is you know having that very very strong culture and having that social mission is has definitely helped us and it's meant that when governance and compliance and regulation have been introduced, they haven't felt like they're directly conflicting with what we're trying to achieve. There have been occasions where we've had to have some, you know, interesting discussions, but that's that's a that's a healthy tension to have. I think one of the the things that I think most startups will um, identify with, and we're not immune to it at all, is you know there's there's always a a some fire going on that needs to be dealt with, and. It's, uh, it's, it's part of startup culture, I think, or so I've come, come to learn <laughs> over the last uh, year and a half, is to, you know, deal with the big problems first. Uh, you know, what's the riskiest assumption you can, you can test against? What's the, what's the major risk that you need to, to, to deal with? And the, the, the danger of that, I think, is if the failure to compartmentalize the different types of risks that a company faces. So you go, right, hmm. look, there's a big risk here. Let's you know, turn the whole attention of the company to fixing that problem. And then oh, look, there's another risk. Let's turn the whole attention of the company to that problem. And it's the board's role to identify and make sure people aren't forgetting the other risks and the more subtle risks that are present. And so it can be quite difficult, I think, for a board to come in and say, okay, let's spend some time talking about your seventh biggest risk when there are you know three major ones that everyone's yeah. dealing with can... and i can see why the founder would turn around and think, oh that's an unnecessary distraction but you know hearing it put that way and actually thinking about it from the person the the, the director asking this question that that's their job but this is kind of you as the ceo you as the executive team yeah you know i get why 80 percent of your attention is putting this big fire out over here because you know, it is really important we put this big fire out and you have the teams that run triage but actually we're looking at the whole business and we're looking at on a non-reactive time frame and we have to plan through and actually we're almost working on different thought cycles yeah yeah absolutely and you know ultimately and this is something that I think 
is a, a particularly interesting dynamic in founder-led companies is what um, what's a, what is a director thinking about that's different from a founder. So a founder is you know, usually quite a significant shareholder, um, but they're also an employee. Mm-hmm. You're a CEO, you have an employment contract. And yeah, you can get fired and everything. <laughs> you can get fired. And the person that can do the firing is the board of directors. And the, so the, the directors is a, very, is a different dynamic uh, to play. They have a you know, legal obligation to promote the success of the company for all of its shareholders. And one of those shareholders, or like a few of those shareholders, might be the founders. They might be significant shareholders, but they're not all of them. Mm-hmm. There's usually you know, some VC money in there. There's, there might be some other institutional investors you know we have we have we for example have a whole bunch of crowdfunding uh crowd, oh, crowdfunding really? investors yeah that's um, interesting and so the directors has a legal obligation to think about what well, is this in the best interest of all of those shareholders and if a director ultimately believes an executive is not the right person to carry out a strategy that acts in the best interest of all those those shareholders then they can you know remove them or you know, remove their delegated authorities or powers and so on. And that is a quite a strange dynamic in a founder-led company. It's like, hey, this is my company. What are oh, you? yeah. <laughs> I've lived that dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange dynamic. <laughs> but I think it's something that the founders have to be very, very respectful of and acknowledge and and come to, pe- come to terms with quite early on. Yeah. But also is... For the director to say, like, I'm here to help and guide and chat and you know challenge. I'm a critical f- friend in this in this relationship, but um, ultimately, I'm I'm the one who's next on the line on the success of this company. So uh, you might be you know financially invested, but I'm legally invested. Yeah, it, it yeah, it's a really different dynamic, and I actually don't think it is one that that that, that founders, first time founders, understand at all. Actually, yeah. I certainly don't think I particularly did, and I, I think that I didn't understand how to treat that suitably respectfully, as you say. And I could have made, I could have made that working relationship a lot more constructive, probably by doing the things that you're talking about in the getting those directors spending a little bit more time with middle managers and seeing how those teams were making their own decisions and, and were suitably informed enough yeah. to do that as opposed to being the conduit of all knowledge and, yes. and then you're also the single point of focus of everything which is quite stressful in its own way yeah well I think because um, you know, I've mentioned before that we have to have you know kind of full stack corporate governance here and it works very well because it means that um, we have a chief risk officer who will report directly into the board um, board risk and compliance committee. Uh, similarly, I do also um, as as the lawyer. Then you have someone that's responsible for internal audit, and they respond. They report directly into the chair of the audit committee. And so there is that you know there is that corporate governance. There are those lines of communication, those voices that are different from the CEOs, and it means that you just get a really nice rounded view of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you still have successfully kept your startup or your your scale up culture and vision and you all feel like you're running up the same hill yeah i mean i think i think broadly i think um the ability to go very quickly on things is 
really important to us and the the board get that and I get that and you know of course the executive get that as well I talked to before about how we have you know full stack teams that will execute against a particular problem that's part part of the the overarching framework for how the board and how the executive and how you know me and other people get comfortable that things are being done in the right way but also being done very quickly you know we could have said right here are a bunch of product development processes or a bunch of change management processes and if you want to change anything you have to go through this central infrastructure and I mean a long time ago early in my career I every advert that I placed in the in the newspaper I physically had to take the artwork every time to compliance and get it signed off even if there was a courier waiting outside to kind of get it to the Daily Express or something for it to run overnight I mean it was just the most yeah <laughs> soul destroying inefficient possible thing yeah. well yeah, I work very closely with our marketing team here who produce a, a, bun- a bunch of, of articles and blog posts and so on. But essentially, if I'm satisfied that they know what they're doing, they're well-educated, they run their own quality assurance, so they do their own compliance monitoring, then as long as I'm satisfied that it's effective and running well, then they can kind of run themselves. They don't, they don't need... For me to come and you know check words on on their adverts, and also I think a really useful means of kind of product development or change management is that is test, testing and learning as you go. So, you know, for a large for a large bank or a large organisation, it's very difficult to do that because there aren't really isolated cohorts of customers to test ideas against. It's like look to take a change through the organisation. Multiple stakeholders need to be involved to basically change the plumbing or change the platform or whatever needs to change. And a whole bunch of people need to approve it and sign it off because that's how the organization is managing its risks. We will, you know, we have a much more startup culture of that, which is to, you know, roll out a very simple, rudimentary, and quite often poor version of a product mm-hmm. to 20 people, have some feedback roll it out to 100 people, yep. have some feedback, and uh, 500 people, and then and so on and yep. so on, until you get to a point where you say, actually, you know, we've, we've, we've got so much feedback, we've learned so much that all of the things that you would have said to us had we come and brought this to you for compliance or legal approval, we've already thought about through our engagement with our customers. Brilliant. Which makes my life super, super easy, and I just say, okay, maybe think about this one more thing, that more th- one more thing, and, and off you go. I think... That has to be reflected in the kind of agility of the organization to be able to do that, but also the agility of our risk, how we do risk management. Um, we're also very lucky in that we have a very highly engaged customer base, which has been driven in part by the missions around the mission of you know, trust and transparency. So we have a very engaged community forum. So we can say on the community forum, uh, look, we're, we're thinking about launching a new idea. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit buggy, it's a bit rubbish. But if you're interested in coming and testing it with us, and you know, we have people queuing up to come and test our products, and it's because I think the reason why people are so keen to to come and test our product, even when you know they're not working particularly great, is because they want to be part of this new story about banking. For example, when we um, when we first started launching our current account, you know, it was a a significantly inferior product to the prepaid product, which was our, our original product. And we had lots and lots of people that said, that's fine, I'm willing to give up my 
you know, fantastic mm. prepay product because I just want to try out this current account. I just want to be a part of the the story. And so having that very highly engaged customer base and having a highly engaged community gives you that freedom to make those, um, get that for- forgiveness and buy-in from people mm-hmm. when you're when you And that's what's keeping you. you as a the startup <laughs> scale-up company because that's that classic process. Test, iterate, learn, and continuous feedback, nuancing and, and pivoting, and not pivoting, but, but just iterating till you get that you hit that sweet spot with the customer. Yeah. And that's clearly why this is working so successfully. I'm conscious of, of, of how much time I'm taking up of yours and I, and I don't want to um, I don't want to overstay my welcome in your, in your pineapple HQ uh, which is a very nicely named room and it does have pineapples in if anybody was doubting. I can see another room over there that has I think ponies in. Alpacas. Um, uh, alpacas but we're in the pineapple room and we have a fine selection of pineapples. Um, any final words of wisdom for our director who is presumably going to have to go and find themselves on the path of diplomacy that, that you have so recently come to tread yourself? Uh, yeah I mean to, the, the I <clears throat> We were we were joking before uh, beforehand, Vicky, about how part of my role is to be a diplomat, you know, kind of gliding between the board and the exco and and the rest of the rest of the organisation. And I think you know a director has a, has a similar role to play, um, and the soft skills and diplomacy and kind of creativity and thinking about how do you, how do you how do you skin this particular cat? You know, you don't. It doesn't just have to be through. Uh, process, or it doesn't just have to be through bring a, bring a load of data to, to me so that I can satisfy myself. There must be there must be other ways, particularly in a small company. And maybe it's you know, for example, having one to ones with middle management. Maybe it's um, you know having some games and fun around a particular point. So as an example, you know, we're we're introducing uh, we're implementing GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, at the moment. And there are some interesting discussions around how and uh, how we should operationally implement these things. And we thought, you know, we could do a bunch of training. We could create some GAT charts that put it together as a project. And we thought, you know, maybe we should just run it as a series of debates so that people are debating the hot topics around data protection regulation. And they've been really, really successful. And because they've engaged people much better than other ways so you know just thinking about other creative ways to solve the same problem hmm. you know sometimes just and also i think founders and people that work in startups are usually very very smart they don't need to have a lecture about things they don't need to be given a bunch of training guides i've i've found that quite often just asking an apposite curious question to a bunch of smart people just nudges them into a into a certain way of thinking and then they just solve the problem themselves and so actually that the 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 role of the director to ask those interesting opposite questions at the right time just to nudge people into the right direction is is i think very important (laughs) um oh very clever yes (laughs) I'm going to keep an eye out for for, for those future diplomatic manipulations. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Dean. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Dean Nash of Monzo, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. You can submit your question as ever at vickybrock.com slash podcast.